2: You're listening to the QuickBook Reviews podcast. Brighten your day with a book. Hello, my fellow bookworms. This is Philippa from QuickBook Reviews two author interviews and five book reviews. How are you all? Are you okay? Why, why do these things always happen to me? Is it just me? So today I was on my run and you know me, run like a... Well, I know I run like an elephant and that's fine. But I run past this bit where there are lots of sheep in a field. And normally the farmer comes on this quad bike thing um, with the feed in the back. And as he comes, all the sheep hear him and start running to him because they know food's on, it, on its way. And this morning I was running... Perhaps a little more flat-footed than normal, but because my feet were making, poof, 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 it was like the the exhaust of this quad bike. All the sheep started running, thinking I was the farmer delivering food. And not only was I mortified that well, that's the sound I make when I run a faulty exhaust. I then found myself sort of apologising to these sheep that food wasn't here yet, sorry. He'll be coming soon. Honestly, what am I like? But... What also am I like? Oh, before I get started on the books, I need to thank, I need to thank someone very special for giving me the loveliest Apple podcast review. Thank you. Well, you've gone by the name Cliff End. I don't know who you are. You have written the loveliest, loveliest review on Apple podcast. It means so much. Thank you. And it really does help with all the algorithms. A Book Lover's Sweet Dream, you've entitled it. Thank you for your words. They meant an awful lot. Um, But other words that mean an awful lot are these books. Well, some of them. Let's have a look at what books we've got today. So we've got Mother's Boy by Patrick Gale. And Patrick's coming on to talk to us about this book. Then we've got The Bingo Hall Detectives by Jonathan Whitelaw. And Jonathan's going to answer five questions in five minutes. Then we've got Tick Tock by Simon Mayo. Instructions for a Heat Wave by Maggie O'Farrell and Just Got Real by Jane Fallon. Quite a selection of books there for you. And let's get started. So Patrick Gale, Mother's Boy. Oh, and at the end, at the end, we're going to also look at what the Facebook group have been reading because we've been reading some books. But that will be at the end. Anyway, let's get back. To Patrick. And I have to say, I got this book from a local bookshop. And I didn't even realise when I got home and opened it up, there was a leather bookmark in it with the name of the book and the author. And then inside it says there's this plate here, Independent Bookshop Edition, and it's numbered and signed with a letter from Patrick Gill. Isn't that wonderful? So I was very excited about that. Anyway, let me read you the blurb on this book. Laura, a poor Cornish girl, meets her handsome husband when they're both in service in Tynmouth in 1916. They have a baby, Charles, but Laura's husband returns home from the trenches a damaged man, already ill with the tuberculosis, that will soon leave her a widow. In a small class-obsessed town, she raises her boy alone, working as a laundress, and gradually becomes aware that he is some kind of genius – As an intensely private young man, Charles signs up for the Navy with the new rank of CODA. His escape from the tight, gossipy confines to the colour and violence of war sees him blossom as he experiences not only the possibility of death, but the constant danger of a love that is as clandestine as his work. Let's do the first sentence here. Atlantic, 1941. The ship was under attack and horribly exposed by a clear night and a full moon until a change in the weather brought fog or cloud, ideally both. All that they could do was fight back and hoped that they were not outnumbered or outgunned. I loved this book. I was surprised by this book. I was mesmerised by this book. Um, It's one that stays with you. So it's based on a true story but it is a work of fiction so it adds a lot to it and I want to talk to Patrick about that and how he added the flesh onto the bones it's it's a sort of a slow story and yet a fast story a gentle one and yet a sort of hard-hitting one it's just one of those that's glorious and sad and yeah wonderful I, yeah very good I think you can tell But let's talk to Patrick now. So Patrick Gale, whose latest wonderful book is Mother's Boy, welcome to the Quick Book Reviews podcast.
1: It's a delight to be here, Philippa.
2: It's a delight to have you. What? I mean, it's hard to describe your book because it's gentle and yet it's punchy as well. It's the sort of book that makes you feel like you've had a lovely hug when you realise the story's squeezing you so tight. You you don't want to let go it's like a gentle power is, is was that your oh, intention
1: really i just wanted to tell the story but but i i think every writer dreads writing what the industry calls a quiet book and this was always going to be a mixture of the two because on one level it's a very very domestic story of a, a young boy's childhood and youth and his mother But it was also always going to involve two world wars, so I knew there would be excitement as well.
2: And it's not just the excitement of the wars; it it is these events that happen in people's lives. You know, one minute it's um, quite quite a mundane, ordinary scene, and then suddenly something happens that changes. The, the journey of the characters. Um, and at the end of the book, you talk about the background of the story and that it's sort of loosely based on um, some particular people. Can you explain a little more about that?
1: Yes, it is um, actually quite closely based on the facts of the life of a great Cornish poet, Charles Causley, and his mother, Laura. Well, we, we know quite a bit about Charles's life. We know very little about Laura's. Laura was a laundress. And Charles, um, in some ways, has always fascinated me because he has one of the least sexy lives of any British poet in that he uh, had on the face of it, a very uneventful life. He grew up in this very small town in Cornwall, um, went away to war, but then came back and lived with his mother for a very long time and taught primary school. And officially, he died a virgin. Well, one of those, I now know, wasn't true. And so what I wanted to do with the novel was to explore the the process by which he became such an extraordinary poet, but also explore that very, very intense relationship with his mother, um, because she was clearly an enormous influence on him. She raised him single-handedly because his father died when he was very young. Um, And she was almost uneducated and yet Charles becomes this great poet. And that process fascinated me. But most of all, I was really interested in the process by which this man created a public persona that in some ways is quite forbidding, this very virtuous, unapproachable schoolmaster. Um, And I knew from his poetry there was much more to him. There was a a beating, red-blooded heart underneath it all. But but it needed to I needed to unpick the layers and uh, unpick the processes. It was a bit like writing about a spy because in many ways Charles lived like a spy. He was basically gay and yet would never have used that word of himself. He never came out. He suppressed all his emotional life really. He wanted you to think he had no emotional life, and yet if you read Charles's poems, he so clearly did have um Many, many, you know, emotional adventures, and cared very deeply about people, but but he hid it.
2: Was there anything that you uncovered in your research that really shocked or surprised you about him, but that you didn't include it in the book?
1: Funny enough, I embarked on the research just as if I was writing a biography of him. So I read everything I could find. I read his secret diaries. I read his letters, um, and. Among the papers he had kept until his death, the, the the bit of evidence that really blew me away was this Dear John letter written to him by an officer in the Navy with whom he clearly had some kind of an affair during the war. And the fact that Charles had kept the letter all that time, I thought was a signal that it the relationship had meant something quite you know significant to him. And yet the letter is chilling in a very 1950s way. It's sort of saying, Dear Charles. Thank you for your letter. Basically, you know, Although I was very grateful to all we experienced together, please don't write to me again unless it's something you wouldn't mind my young wife reading, because that's why I'm I am now a married man. Um, and I, I thought, wow, that's that's uh, for him to have kept that all that time. Maybe he was angry about it. What did he feel about it? So, uh, part of me was very relieved to find that letter because it proved that my instinct about Charles was right. Um, but I, I then had the challenge of feeling I had to honour it. I had to include that relationship in the book. I, I'd already planned a much more loving and tender relationship. And I thought, no, no, I've got to include the officer as well. So I don't want to give away too much of the no, plot, but no. there are there are two two love affairs concealed within within the war chapters of the book.
2: And yet there's so much more about love as well. For, uh,
1: aside from the affair yes mothers uh, and as apart from anything else about the love between a mother and a son and that love which is often very combative i mean in charles's diaries his mother clearly gets on his nerves a lot of the time and yet i i knew that at the end of my story he would choose to come home and live with her until her dying day so she must in many ways have been the love of his life
2: And I'm interested in the difference between publishing a book as fiction and non-fiction. So was that always something that you were very focused Mm. on, that you were going to put the flesh on the bones of the research?
1: Totally. I always knew it would be a novel because I always knew I wanted to tell the stories that a biographer couldn't confidently tell. And basically, I wanted to go behind the the closed bedroom door um, and... A biographer would would have to do an awful lot of conjecture, which wouldn't be very professional. Whereas, as a novelist, you're allowed to to make stuff up. I haven't actually made up a great deal, but I've joined the dots mm. in a way that I've already done in a previous novel, a place called Winter, which is um trying to solve the mystery of my my great grandfather's life. Um, and in in the same way, and I, I, this time around, I've honoured the known facts, but I've made up. Um, story that will join those facts together in an emotionally coherent way.
2: So, did that the story come easily to you as you were doing the research? Did it, did it just flow, or did you? Well, it was very to inhibiting issue? to
1: start with, as as it always is, if you're setting out to do something so cheeky as to to write a novel about a real person. And in Charles's case, of course, I I I knew, and I'm I'm still meeting people who knew him or knew his mother so you've got that layer of inhibition as well um, my way in though was very much laura because laura was such a mystery there were you know she left behind no significant papers apart from the occasional letter to charles um, I, I knew i could make up a lot about her character and she was my way of stopping charles from being too forbidding for the reader because I knew she would love him unconditionally. And so my way into the novel really was exploring Laura and, and building her as a character. And she is largely a work of fiction, although I've I've honored the known facts. So there's a lot in there about um laundry work, for instance. But there's also there's also a lot about her hidden emotional life and her her frustrations and her loves and her fears for Charles as well, because she she realizes very early on that her boy is special, and therefore is never ever going to pass for normal. He's never going to fit in comfortably to this very tight little community in which they're growing up. Um, I think I think her experiences are common to uh, a, a lot of readers who may have a gifted child. Will will know what that's like on on the one level. You want your child to be less gifted because you want them to be liked and to fit in and i think it's it's very hard when you realize that the thing that makes them special will always make them stand out and always make them a bit of an oddball um and i found that rather moving you know to explore that that idea especially because charles is special in ways that laura doesn't begin to comprehend. She will never be a writer. She will never be a a pianist, because Charles was a a really good musician as well. Um, And yet she enables those things to grow. She nurtures them.
2: And to recognise, yes, the advantages of having those incredible gifts, but also the disadvantages, you know, that scene at the butchers. I won't go into any more detail, but.
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, we know we know Charles was bullied at school and he actually wrote a wonderful poem. Several of his for people who don't know his poetry, it's enormously accessible and very conversational. And several of his most accessible poems are closely based on his boyhood and his growing up. And he writes one about you know being bullied by the butcher's son. And um, I took that as one of my cues because I, I, what I've tried to do is to bring to life in the novel characters who are just fleetingly mentioned in the poems. So there are two in particular, the, the butcher's son, who I call Joe, um, and the town prostitute, who is, um, there's a marvellous poem of his called Demolition Order about what happened, how he feels when this woman's house is demolished in the 1950s to make way for council housing. And he writes about her with such deep affection that I thought he must have known her as a boy and she must have been about his mother's age I wonder if the mothers knew each other, because there was only one school. So they probably did go to the same primary school and play together as children. What would a good church-going woman like Laura have made of the town prostitute? Um, and so, so although it's made up, it's based on little hints in Charles's poems. I, I, I took the poems as a kind of code, which I had to crack.
2: How hard was it to let go of Charles at the end of the story? Did he stay with you or did you mourn him? Or-
1: oh, he's very much still with me. I, I In my other life, um, I'm one of the two patrons of the Charles Causley Trust. So I love the fact that lots of people are reading this novel who don't know that Charles is a real person until they get to the end of the book and then they often contacted me to say, the first thing I did was to Google Charles Causley. And now I'm reading his poems. Thank you for that. So I think, great, my, my work here is done. If I can bring more people to read these amazing poems.
2: And let's talk about the audiobook as well, because you narrate that uh, beautifully as well. I did listen to... Some... Oh,
1: you're, you're very kind. I was very nervous about getting the accents right.
2: <laughs> you narrate all your books. Is that something very important to you?
1: It is. I love reading my work to readers. I love I love reading aloud at festivals. And I think there's something deeply intimate about an audiobook. You have the, the reader in your head. So if that reader is also the writer, I think that's quite special. And um, I'm a frustrated actor, I suppose. I, I wanted to be an actor before I became a novelist. So it's a very nice way of getting it out of my system. But with this book, I, as I said, I was really nervous about the accents. So for the first time, I actually paid a professional accent coach to make sure my North Cornwall accents and my Devon accents and my Liverpool accent uh, were were pretty much correct.
2: <laughs> well, it's interesting because when some authors want to narrate their books, sometimes it's brilliant, but other times it it actually they're better at writing than narrating should we say uh-huh. um, yeah. whereas for yours yes it really it add it's like adding herbs to a dish it really added that that essence well
1: i hope so i mean i i have spoken to actors who've recorded audiobooks and you're paid very very little for the job so quite often they don't have time to read the book first so what you're hearing on the audiobook is the actor reading it for the first time um and wow I think if you're the the author, you know when the big climaxes are coming. So you know how to pace it. So I I know when there's a big shock coming and I can lull the reader into a sense of comfort and then hit them over the head when we turn the page.
2: (laughs) Right. We've got a few quick fire questions for you now to see which which you would opt for. Um, Cornwall or Devon?
1: Cornwall. No question.
2: World War I or World War Two?
1: Oh, that's really hard. World War Two.
2: Lots of edits or no edits?
1: Oh, lots of edits. I love being edited.
2: <laughs> and the final quick one, book cover or book title?
1: Book title, because the cover can be changed.
2: <laughs> <laughs> if you weren't writing, what, what would you be doing?
1: Oh, I used to say I would be a psychotherapist because I think I do um Write partly for uh, psychotherapeutic reasons. I love taking people's minds to pieces and working out what makes them tick. But I'm getting a bit old for that now. I think if I had to stop writing now, I'd become a full-time gardener because gardening gives me such intense pleasure, and I would very happily do nothing but gardening all year round.
2: Oh wow! Wasn't wasn't expecting that as an answer. That's great. <laughs> I'm interested though as an experienced author is the publication process as stressful as ever
1: it is stressful but in a very predictable way I mean I know I know what to expect and yeah because I've been doing it so long I mean this was my 17th novel um I'm, I'm probably quite bossy and controlling with my poor publishers in that I I know what works and um I I do a lot of touring. I've done it. By the end of this year, I will have spoken about the book about 45 times at different festivals and bookshops wow. and so on because I know I can do it. I know I can. I'm, I'm, I'm a bit like Jeffrey Archer. I'm a, sa- a salesman for my own books. And I think that does take them by surprise. <laughs> They're not used to that always. Um, but I also, on one level, I'm much more relaxed about it now because I'm so lucky to have stayed in print all this time. I have a... I have a very loyal readership so it's really a matter of just reaching out to them and hoping they will tell their friends.
2: So if you could go back to when you were writing your first book and you could whisper something in your ear as you're doing that what would you whisper? I
1: would whisper take your time don't be in such a hurry because my early books are very very um I think underwritten uh they 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 have nice plots and interesting characters, but I skate over the surface in them. I think partly because I wasn't a very happy person when I started writing. I, I, I was quite screwed up. And as I've aged and become more grounded, I've become far braver about writing about painful things and confronting the pain. I It took me a long time. I think uh, my novel rough music was the first one edited by a really transformative editor and she um was very tough with me and she said you've got to write about the things you're avoiding writing about and she made me on on the rewrites one of the things she would often do is to highlight the moments where she thought i was avoiding the pain and go she made me go into the dark the dark places and i'm very very grateful for that because it's it's definitely, I think, enriched my books. Um, there's a kind of before and after Patricia Parkin in my oeuvre. And the the books before Patricia were often very funny, but they, as I said, they they skate over the surface a bit.
2: So the latter ones, are they more therapeutic as well for you to
1: write because of that? Oh, definitely, definitely. I'm I'm really working stuff through, yeah. <laughs> I feel very sorry for my nearest and dearest because I think they can see that I'm... Getting closer and closer. I know my my next novel is entirely peopled by my relatives. They're all dead relatives, but it's about my mother and my grandmother and their marriages. So um, it's getting quite close to home.
2: How interesting, because I was just going to say what's next. So when will we get to read this, gem?
1: Oh, not for about three years. It's, It's a sequel to A Place Called Winter. It revisits Harry Kane, but much later in his life. In the 1950s, when for one year he came back to England and stayed with his long lost daughter, who was my grandmother, and visited my mother, who was then had just become a mother for the first time. So it's, it, it's a novel about very much about families and love and expectations, I think, what, what, what women in particular look for in, in a relationship. So we'll, we will see. <laughs>
2: <laughs> We've got three years to wait, but in in the meantime, everyone should be reading Mother's Boy, Patrick Gale. Thank you very much, indeed.
1: Thank you, Philip. It's been a delight.
2: So, coming up, we have another four books to review and another author interview.
3: Millions of people
1: have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost fifty pounds.
2: Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? Write The next book yeah, and the feedback I've had on this just from people reading the cover, the, the book cover and seeing the title just from some photos I put on the Facebook group was wonderful. Anyway, this next book is called The Bingo Hall Detectives by Jonathan Whitelaw. Listen to this an irresistible slice of murder and mystery. There's a killer on the loose in the Lake District and the members of the Penrith Bingo Club have decided they're the ones to catch the culprit. Jason Brazel, or Brazel, sorry, that's me. I don't know how quite to pronounce that, but I'm sure I'll find out, is an out-of-work journalist who lives in Penrith with his family and mother-in-law. Amita. She knows everyone and everything that's going on in this corner of the lakes. So when it's discovered that Madeleine Frobisher, one of Amita's fellow regulars at the bingo club, has died, found by the postman outside her crumbling country home close to Ullswater, she senses immediately this is no accident. The trouble is, no one else seems to take her suspicions seriously. That is, until she enlists the help of her friends at the Penrith Bingo Club. Dismissed by many as eccentric, over the hill or out of touch, these amateur sleuths are on the case, which could prove unlucky for some. Let's do first sentence. Chapter one. We're not Starsky and Hutch. Would you please slow down? Jason gritted his teeth. His mother-in-law was a notorious backseat driver. Too fast, too slow, too close to the curb. Watch out for the cyclist. Wasn't that the turning there? Are we there yet? She had mentioned them all. It should have been a scenic drive through the lakes to the peaceful town of Penrith, not the Cannonball Run. I love this book. This is, if you like the Richard Osmond series, Thursday Murder Club, all of those This is a book you will really enjoy. I thought it was great. I thought it was better than Richard Osman's books. I don't know why people aren't shouting about this book from the rafters. Yes, okay, it's not a deep uh, work of um, incredible high-end literature. It's not a horror book. It's not got, you know, mutilations here, there and everywhere but it's a great story. It's got great characters in it. It's got the humour. It's got the mystery. So, yes, it's lighter, but it's superbly done. And as I say, the moment people saw the title, The Bingo Hall Detectives, on all the social media I was putting on, people were like, oh, I want to read this book. This sounds right up my street. And it just shows. Um I I think it's uh, exceptional. And it's uh, published by Harper North. So based on that book alone, I'm going to be paying a lot more attention to Harper North. I want to see a lot more of the books they have to offer. But I think you've gathered. I loved it. I think you'll love it. Let's talk to Jonathan now. Jonathan Whitelaw, author of The Bingo Hall Detectives. Welcome to the Quick book Reviews podcast.
3: Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
2: Well, it's a pleasure to have you here because your book, um, uh, honestly, I loved every minute of it. I love the characters, I love the pace, the story. It it was great. Richard Osman needs to move over and uh, <laughs> y- y- tell me. There's going to be more. Tell me there is. There are more books. Uh, uh,
3: yes, certainly. Uh, at least one more. Um it's it's with it's with my editors at the moment. So it's April uh, April twenty seventh, I think it is that it's due out. Uh, April twenty seventh, twenty and is twenty three. We've got a title, but I'm not allowed to reveal oh. it yet. Which is uh, which oh. is very very exciting. I know. Sorry, I'm I'm, do, I'm doing that all the time at the moment. It's awful. I'm uh, I'm kind of going about. Yes, we've got a title for it, and we're all very happy with it. But uh, actually, I'm not allowed. To oh, say you, you can, can trust
2: <laughs> us. We won't tell anybody about it. Anybody? Oh, <laughs> I've heard
3: that one before. I'm a journalist. Remember, I've uh, I've I've heard that a thousand times, and probably used that a thousand times as well. <laughs> which is uh, <laughs> which we won't go into. And we should
2: also <laughs> say that your currently in Canada while we're recording it and it is 4am so I'm drinking coffee in sort of sympathy for you I, I, <laughs> I, I, I'm amazed anyway let's see how you do with these questions at 4am can you describe your book in a minute
3: certainly well speaking of journalists it, it features a journalist that features a uh, Jason Brazel who's an outwork journalist from the uh, from Penrith and uh, in the general Cumbria area. Um, and he teams up with his uh, mother-in-law, who lives with the family, Amita, uh, to solve the murder of a local pensioner who's a member of the, Bing- the Penrith Bingo Club as his amateur. And the two of them couldn't be any more, um, any more opposites, really. Jason is uh, pretty lethargic. Uh, full of malaise because of his current predicament of being out of work, being a journalist and being a complete technophobe. Uh, whereas Amita is a pillar of uh, the local community, member of the WI, member of the, the, the Bingo Club, obviously, and, and a thousand other clubs, a keen runner. Um, and uh, and also very, very good with, with Facebook and, and social media and and uh, mobile phones and everything. So um, the pair of them uh, find themselves in a situation where uh, it's one of Amita's friends who is discovered dead uh, in the the, behind her mansion in the Ullswater area of the the kind of northern lakes in the lake district and she suspects that there's foul play and the pair of them have to get to the bottom of it Um,
2: the next question who is your favorite major and your favorite minor character that you had to write for this book
3: that's 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 really really hard. The thing about characters, I as I think every every author always says, oh, your characters are like your children. In terms of minor characters, I think uh, I think Frank Alby, the uh, the the sort of soon to be retired uh, detective inspector um, of of Cumbria Police, I think he's probably my <laughs> yeah. favourite. But I thoroughly enjoyed writing uh, Alby. He's he's very cantankerous. He's very sceptical. He detests Jason. Um, from the off pretty much from, from from yeah from their from their very first interaction always sort of fe- felt like a bit of a um bit of therapy as i was writing this this novel because the he, he is just utterly unlikable it meant any time that he came up or any time he he popped his head above the parapet uh i got to take the gloves off a little bit because that's the thing with cozy crime is that you know it, it's as a, as a genre you don't you don't really get to have um, you know, really nasty, horrible, uh, uncompromising people all that often. So it was, it was really, really fun. I think to try and distance myself from people asking me is, is there a lot of Jason, a lot of you in Jason, with the whole kind of journalism element of it. I think I'm going to have to say amateur, because I think she's the type of person that I want to be when I grow up. You know, <laughs> she, she's the sort of she's the sort of adult in the situation who who. Uh, who will come in? Very matter of fact. Uh, has a has a very very sensible way of doing things. A very very strict way of doing things. A very proper way of doing things in, in her way. And we all we all really want someone like that to come in and take charge, don't we? Uh, to, to to make sure that they know that they at least they know what they're doing. Um. So yeah, I think I think I could be doing with an actual amateur in my in my real life.
2: Yes, like, likewise. Your next question: What three things do you want us to feel as we're reading the book?
3: Joy. First and foremost, it's it's a cosy crime novel. The second thing would probably be intrigue. You know, it's it's it is a murder. It's a murder mystery, after all. I think, lastly, maybe appreciation of the, of of Cumbria and the Lake District. You know, it was um it it was very much written uh, as my ode to that area. Uh, because i love it super
2: now the next question a bit more unusual what food and drink did you consume the most while you were writing this particular book <laughs> come on let's have oh, the blimey.
3: truth this was my opportunity i suppose to say that you know i stick to a very strict diet of greens and 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 uh and, and high Raw protein food. yeah exactly and, but in actual fact, it's just probably coffee and, and biscuits. If I love tea, I, I I drink far too much. I drink far too much coffee as well, but I love. I do love a, a good cup of tea. Um, as, as my publishers will attest, uh, the, the Jen and, and Alice at Harper North, uh, we regularly discuss tea, and, and they, they they tend to get me tea when I when I pop into the offices in Manchester, and it'll be a tea that I haven't tried yet. There was a biscuit tea that I that I'd never tried, I think Yorkshire Yorkshire teas biscuit tea. Yes. Um, and I, and I got I it. I have
2: that every oh, it's day. Oh, wonderful, Lovely. absolutely wonderful.
3: Mm. And I do love it. I do love a, a rich tea biscuit. That's a that that that's been my one downfall, my, oh. my one hubris here in Canada is that you can't get you can't get McVitie's rich tea biscuits, and they they are by they are by far my favourite biscuit. And I think they're probably everybody's favorite biscuit, but nobody wants to admit it. Nobody wants to admit the humble rich tea is their favorite because
2: it's no, I'm sorry, I'm not going to admit <laughs> that. That's not there's not enough calories. There's, there's not enough sugar and butter in a rich tea to make it my favorite. The, you know, these are these
3: are that, that's the thing. It's you know, it's it's it does its job. It get, gets up every morning, and it goes and does its job, and then it goes home at night. And you know, it's not flash in the pan like a like a chocolate hobnob or anything. Like that's not a jaffa cake. Is it a cake? Is it a biscuit? You know all that kind of tax wrangling and stuff like that the rich tea it's it does what it says on the packet and it's uh, it'll always be there for you so there
2: but if you had a plate of rich tea or a plate of shortbread freshly made now which well where's your argument now, there
3: for, i'm going to sound like a like very very stubborn and i'm going to go for rich tea and it's mostly be, it's <laughs> mostly because i i actually i i try not to eat that much sugar and shortbread is just sugar incarnate, isn't it? That's that's all yes. it is. And I always feel <laughs> dead guilty with it. I do. I I I genuinely don't trying not to eat that much sugar i'm going to get this reputation now as as anti-sugar activist jonathan whitelaw and it's really it's really not the case
2: your last question what's been the most memorable moment so far in your writing the generic
3: answer is oh there's lots to choose from um but i'm not i'm not going to get away with that i I think i i i distinctly remember when a my second novel came out in 2018 um corp I I got an email, lovely email from a reader who said that she had been uh, in a bit of a reading funk. She hadn't really read anything all the way through uh, for about a year. But she said that just everything that she tried to to to, to pick up and get through, uh, she just couldn't do it. And some some it was you know the first chapter, some it was the first page, some it was maybe halfway through. And she'd been recommended Hellcorp by one of her friends who'd read it not long after it came out, and she said that she managed to get all the way through it, and she felt that it, she'd conquered that that hill of getting back into reading, and she wanted to thank me. So I was, I was absolutely flabbergasted. Uh, first and foremost, flabbergasted that, uh, that a someone had read it, and, and b um, that they would taken the time to to get in touch and say that they uh, say that they'd loved it. Um, which was which was very very special and it's always stuck with me because it it, it was a real it was a real sort of light bulb moment for me in, in my writing career and as a writer because it it sort of showed up until that point I hadn't really quite appreciated how much how how powerful a tool this is and 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 you know away from the actual story itself and regardless of what it is it's really such a special part and such a such a wonderful wonderful tool for for everyone. You know, and I was I was delighted and very humbled as well, very, very humbled. It's, it's been a very humbling experience being a professional writer um when you when you have when you hear such lovely things, like from yourself and and from readers, particularly for the bingo hall detectives, it's been it's been lovely.
2: We cannot wait for for the next one and more. We'll be hoping for more. So Jonathan Whitelaw, author of The Bingo Hall Detectives. Thank you so much for joining me today. pleasure.
3: Thank you for having me. Thank you.
2: Three more books to review and then I can send you on your way. And the next book is by Simon Mayo. His latest book is TikTok. Simon's been on with his previous book, Knife Edge, I think it was. Um, So do feel free to have a, a listen to that. Let me tell you about this book. It starts quietly enough. A tick, tick, ticking you can hear in your ear. Tinnitus, you think. It will pass, but it doesn't. It gets worse and then you pass it on. Before you know it, it spreads. Elsewhere across the globe, it emerges. Small outbreaks at first contain groups of people, young and old, and suddenly it's a plague. And ten days later, it's killing people. The hospitals are overflowing and there is no cure. There is a paranoid panic which sets friend against friend, neighbour against neighbour. Where does the world go from here? Let's do first sentence. The spore was shaped like a ball. Dull, grey and 17 microns in length. That is to say, 17 of a millimetre. It spun as it drifted. The spore cloud of which it was a part of was buffeted by eddies of breath, drafts from the open window and the heat of nearby human bodies. OK, so I am fine with a lot of books about pandemics, plagues, about Covid. Where I struggle are books, and there have been a few, that are based on the premise of, oh, COVID happened a few years ago. And if you thought that was bad, well, is it going to get a lot worse, much worse? Do you know what I mean? And that troubles me and shows me that I haven't really come to terms and dealt with everything that COVID uh, handed out for us all. So I... I was struggling with that premise, and that is my fault entirely, not not the author's. Um, it, it was certainly thrilling, and I think if it sounds like something that sort of floats your boat, then, then you would enjoy it. Uh, it's got the sort of the different characters, and as the pressure mounts and things get worse, and the problems with the hospitals, and yeah, it... Uh, I think I have to say I slightly preferred his last book, but if you're a fan of his writing and if you like the idea of, of TikTok and all that it encompasses, then have a read. So that was TikTok by Simon Mayo. Now, let's come on to this book that was one of my holiday reads, but I only got to read this once we were home. And I'm re- we're recording this, you know, the, the heat wave's just hopefully coming to an end, so... It's an interesting one. This book is called Maggie. No, this book is called, this book is by Maggie O'Farrell and it's called Instructions for a Heat Wave. Uh, Listen to this. It's July 1976 and London is in the grip of a heat wave. It hasn't rained for months. The gardens are filled with aphids. Is it aphids or is it aphids? I don't do gardening. My mother's going to phone me up and shout at me for not knowing a flower. Anyway, Water comes from a standpipe and Robert Riordan tells his wife Greta that he's going round the corner to buy a newspaper. He doesn't come back. The search for Robert brings Greta's children, two estranged sisters and a brother on the brink of divorce, back home, each with different ideas as to where their father may have gone. None of them suspects that their mother might have an explanation that even now she cannot share. And let's do the first sentence for this one. Okay, The heat. The heat. It wakes Greta just after dawn, propelling her from the bed and down the stairs. It inhabits the house like a guest who has outstayed his welcome. It lies along corridors. It circles round curtains. It lolls heavily on sofas and chairs. The air in the kitchen is like a solid entity filling the space, pushing Greta down into the floor against the side of the table. Oh, my goodness. I love this book so much. All emotions. I laughed. I shouted. I cried. I was wondering what was going to happen. It's one of the best reads of the year for me. Why had not I read this book before? I know everybody's going to shout at me when I say that. But forget Hamnet. Yes, it was. But this I loved this book I just thought it was a jewel and um, and I thoroughly enjoyed it and it's one that will be going straight to my mother because I I know that she will like that along with other books that I've reviewed this week but yes sensational now the last book that and this was one I did read on holiday just got real by Jane Fallon okay Here's the premise. When happily divorced Johnny is reluctantly talked into joining a dating app, she's surprised to quickly hit it off with Ant. Phone calls and texts soon evolve into a plan to meet up, which is a problem as Johnny's profile picture is of someone else. Johnny didn't confess her lie, yet unable to stop thinking about what might have been, she hatches a plan to meet Ant in real life without revealing who she really is. Once she and Ant are an item, however, it's soon clear that the only thing Ant was honest about was his profile picture. He's still online dating and intimately texting other women. So Joni contacts them. They need to know. And once they're comparing notes on Ant, upset turns to thoughts of revenge. But how do you get your own back on a truly heartless man? Okay, first sentences. She has no idea what she's doing here, why she'd thought this might be a good idea. She'd lain awake half of the night wondering whether or not she could go through with it, kicking the covers aside because she had broken out in an uncomfortable sticky sweat and then shivering as the cool air hit her damp skin. <sighs> I struggle. I struggle with these this author's books. The premise I thought was brilliant and loads of people are loving this. So this is me. And maybe I'm just at a, uh, at the point where I'm into different types of books as well. But for me the premise was great. I was into the book, but I didn't fulfill me. I didn't I didn't believe how it was going. I don't know. I just thought it would be different and um yeah so but that is definitely me you know this author is beloved by so many readers and yeah, have a read let me know what you think it probably was just me it usually is isn't it but there we go that's my view just got real it didn't quite quite work for me um I think I need to stop reading her books because I'm always disappointed and I don't know why, because I love the premise. Anyway, enough. Each to their own. Just not for me at that at that moment. Let's just do a recap on what books books we have covered today. We've covered Mother's Boy by Patrick Gale and Patrick very kindly joined us uh, to talk to us all about that book. Then we had The Bingo Hall Detectives by Jonathan Whitelaw and Jonathan joined us to answer five questions in five minutes. Then we had TikTok by Simon Mayo instructions for a heatwave by the wonderful Maggie O'Farrell and just got real by Jane Fallon. Those are your books. Now, I do need to talk to you about what we've been reading in the Facebook group because there have been some lovely, lovely, wonderful books being read there. So let me tell you what we were reading. I was busy reading Patrick Gale's book and Jonathan Whitelaw's book. Kate is reading Lessons in Chemistry and loving it. Oh, that is one of my top books this year. Yeah, love that. Jo is still reading uh, Jojo Moyes. She's finding book three not as good as the first book, but she's sucked in and she's she's going for it. Janine has just started The Last Party by Claire McIntosh and she loves Claire's books and Claire's coming back on for a full interview. Is it next week? I should know. I think it is. Then Claire is reading He Said, She Said by Erin Kelly. This is a book I read a long time ago and really, really enjoyed. I think I need to reread that one and see if it's as good on the on the reread. But that was good. Jo is reading The Thursday Murder Club by Richard Osman. Uh, She said not too taxing for a hot day. So there you go. And Debbie has just bought a book because of the title, A Ghost in the Throat. Uh, That sounds like a fascinating book, doesn't it? So I said, uh, wow, it's either going to be amazing or awful. And uh, please keep us posted on that, Debbie. Nancy's reading A Question of Trust by Penny Vicenzi. And she's feeling the heat as well where she lives in Southern California. So those are the books that we've covered. I hope that some are of interest to you or all of them. Who knows? Keep me posted on what you think. And I've got some great books to talk to you about next week. Great author interviews. Can't wait. So look after yourselves and I'll see you very soon. Take care now. Bye bye. You've been listening to the Quick Book Reviews podcast. That's enough books. Said no one ever. See you again soon.